Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we had another interesting conversation about the, the process of bringing a new product to market, specifically um, that process of making sure these products are safe from an environmental and also from a toxicology standpoint. Yeah, safe for the environment, safe for humans, and also safe for insects that are non-target, right? There's beneficial insects and pest insects. We want to kill the pests. We don't want to hurt the beneficial ones. And so today we spoke with Dr. Tim Fredericks and also Dr. Dan Schmel, who work in the toxicology area with Bayer, really doing this work. And they explained what it takes to bring a new product to market, which is quite a bit. Yeah, when I think of the fact that it takes, you know, 12 years-ish and up to $100 million to bring one of these new products to market, that really makes sense when they described how much work goes into to making sure these products are safe. Yeah, absolutely. There's no stone left unturned. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. To kick things off, can you guys tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to today? Let's go ahead and start with Tim, and then we'll end with Dan. How are you doing? I'm Tim Fredericks. Uh, I've been with Bear Crop Science for about 12 years. I've been an ecotoxicologist during that role, so I help look at the, uh, the safety of our products to the environment. And then currently, I'm an environmental engagement manager, which allows me to focus on coordinating projects and outreach directed at bees, monarch butterflies, and other pollinators uh, and species of special concern. Yeah, Tim, you, you have kind of a cool job because you also get to manage some of the beehives and that effort on campus, right? Yeah. So I am a beekeeper, both as a, as a hobbyist sideline or beekeeper. So that's kind of a side gig, you know, in the side gig economy here. But also we, uh, we started an outreach program at at work through Monsanto back in the day and it evolved through into bear. But yeah, we use those hives for, for research on campus, but also education and outreach within the public. So we can, you know, take an observation hive and go to a steam or a, a STEM event. So a, sort of a sciencey event at a grade school and, and talk to them about the, the benefits of pollinators in the environment and, and really focus in on bees a little bit. Yeah. And as you know, Press and I are both interested in bees. Also, I, Tim and I had a lot of fun a few years ago working at the Farm Progress Show, showing some of the farmers and other folks that came through an observation hive and having some honey tasting and some different things. So we had a lot of fun. Yeah. So the that that was actually, so Jason, that's when we met and uh, that was quite the uh, quite the experience. I think we had a couple of bees sneaking out at some points and people were like, Hey, look, there's a bee on the outside. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we got to make sure we keep the bees on the inside. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hey, Dan, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm no different than, than you in terms of how addicting bees can be uh, as far as a hobby and a passion. So I'm an entomologist by training. I went to, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, my link to agriculture is really through my grandfather who, who owned a farm and understanding his needs was really helpful for framing uh, my world in agriculture. Yet in grad school at Penn State, I, where I got my PhD in entomology, I was very pollinator centric, bee centric in the way I looked at anything. Any threats to a bee was a compromise to my passion and what I loved. And I did not see a real strong intersect between keeping bees healthy and productive agriculture, because I was thinking purely in the bee space. 
And through that training, I was not the biggest fan of agrochemical companies, and Bayer included. And through my postdoc at the University of Florida with Dr. Jamie Ellis, I had exposure to industry scientists in a way that I never had previously. And so rather than coming to my passion of, of honeybees primarily at that time uh, through only a bee-centric, narrow understanding, I had a broader understanding of the role of pollinators in agriculture and how they can coexist. And that really started by just understanding the level of detail in the safety assessments that actually took place within companies like Bayer that I did not have a level of understanding. At that time, the scientists that approached us at University of Florida uh, were highlighting the work we did on Savanto, the active ingredient is flupyrodifferone, where at that time it was over 45 studies done on bees specifically to support the safe use of that product for growers with, with pollinator safety in mind. And that was one of those aha wow moments. And that was something I wanted to be a part of. As a bee researcher uh, now with 15 years experience uh, in, in the honeybee space, uh, both as a researcher, but also as a backyard beekeeper and a small side uh, honey business similar to Tim, uh, it's, it's something that, that I get to live my passion each and every day in the work that I do. And so at Bayer, uh, all that say, all that to say, I'm a pollinator ecotoxicologist and risk assessor. And so looking at generating toxicity and exposure data, and then using those data as a function of risk to understand how that product can be used on the ag landscape, uh, to be safe not only to pollinators, even though that's the sphere that I'm working in, uh, but to other organisms within the environment and humans as well. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you, you mentioned you, you maybe had a kind of a negative impression of crop protection products and, and agrochemical companies, et cetera. I think all four of us, you know, as beekeepers and, and as Bayer employees, we definitely have a little bit different perspective on that than maybe we, we would have at one time. And, and it's really interesting as you learn more, we've had several bee-centered podcasts and, and we've explored this topic. Actually, we talked to Jamie Ellis, who I've, been, I've enjoyed his work over the years, the American Bee Journal and other things. I've really followed his work. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a great guy. It must've been a great experience to work under him and to learn under him. But through these conversations, and, and as we know from experience, pesticides, although not necessarily, you know, they not to gloss over that they can be harmful to bees if we're not careful and don't do things right, but they're not the biggest threat facing bees. And probably the average person on the street, if you stop and pull them, for one thing, there's some misconceptions about the state of pollinators probably, but definitely they will say the biggest threat is pesticides. And we, and we all know that's not actually accurate. Yeah, there's a number of surveys that have been conducted by the Bee Informed Partnership of Beekeepers uh, to really understand the, not only the, the perceived uh, main stressors to bees, but putting data behind those perceptions to really understand what is the level of stress to bees, which are really, um, really telling, especially a lot of beekeepers, especially on the, the, the commercial front, will acknowledge the, the, the critical damage that varroa can do to bees. Pesticides can be 
certainly indicated as a stressor, and and I feel it's fair to do so uh, in in particular contexts. Yet, uh, much of the attention is going less from the acute bee kill incidents and more to this overall weakening of of the bee, and that's where our methods are very much in line to assess to a greater degree than what they used to be 20 years ago to really consider these quote-unquote sublethal weakening effects rather than these outright piles of dead bees in front of a colony that really don't exist to a large extent any longer. Mm -hmm. That's not what we see in terms of a pesticide effect and that's not what's really captured it, it the, what's captured in the risk assessment is far greater than than just acute exposure uh, studies that that used to be the case. So it's really neat to see how that framework has developed over time, and and certainly bees and production agriculture can coexist and benefit one another in in many ways. Before we get into what you're currently working on, Dan, maybe it'd be good to kind of set the stage with regards to where we've been in agriculture to where we are today from a safety perspective. I know before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, farmers applying arsenic mixed with molasses. Obviously, that's not good for the applicators. The family dog probably was in danger. Um, and and I, now it's kind of a different world, you know. So maybe can you speak to just the general trend with regards to specificity over time? Yes, absolutely. Happy to do so. So as I mentioned, we don't have these acute bee kill incidences to the degree that that we once did uh, when arsenic and other really acutely toxic chemicals, not only to, to, to humans, but other taxa in the environment were used to produce uh, crops. And so before I jump too far into the newer chemistries that are being used, just defining risk, I think is important for the audience that we talk about toxicity, we talk about exposure. Risk is a function of both toxicity and exposure. And I like to think of uh, a quick illustration to help define risk would be a lion, where a lion, the toxicity doesn't change. Toxicity is innate, doesn't change. The lion would be defined as toxic. Uh, If you encounter a lion in the safari, not only do you have the high toxicity, but you have a high exposure. That lion jumping on you is going to result in a high risk scenario. You go to the zoo and you see that same toxic lion, but it's behind a cage and that exposure is reduced to hopefully zero. That risk (laughs) is therefore going to be zero uh, to, to an individual. And so likewise, if you have very low toxicity, but very high exposure, uh, you can die from consuming too much water. Uh, that's an extreme example, but that would be an example of flipping that low toxicity, high exposure scenario that could result in high risk. And so all that feeds into the way we consider developing a crop protection product uh, or a pesticide uh, for, for growers to be able to use. And so now in this current world that we're working in, we're looking a lot more to uh, technologies that are have a high level of specificity to their targets. And so they're not looking to target every living thing that's in the crop, but rather there's uh, products that can be used to control aphids and yet not be of detriment to 
honeybees. Uh, Savanto, again, is, is a good example to highlight uh, where that specificity for, for the sucking pest insects rather than the, the honeybee that, that may be present is, is one that um, immediately comes to mind as one of our newer chemistries that's been developed. And so in and through that, we're not only screening pest targets early, even very, very early in the development of the product, but we're also looking at those non-target or off-target species. Uh, when a technology, when a pesticide in its early discovery phase is being evaluated. So, so we balance not only efficacy towards the pest, but also how it's impacting potential non-target organisms that may be present on the ag landscape when this, when this uh, technology is being used. Well, Tim, any follow-up comments from you? Right. And so, I mean, with that specificity that Dan mentioned, I mean, the large shift to, to biotech crops where we're incorporating that, that insecticide within the plant, right? And now again, you've got this very targeted mode of action uh, to specific insects within, within the crop. And I mean, if that reduces the, the over-the-top sprays of insecticides that crops need, I mean, I think we've seen a, I want to say a resurgence, but I mean, beekeepers are able to use cotton now. I mean, they, they have to be smart about it, and, but, but we're seeing bees in cotton and in that landscape in Mississippi, and they have a, a great example through the Mississippi Extension and, and all the work going on down there to, to really marry those, those two things together with the decreased insecticide sprays because of the incorporated traits within cotton uh, to, you know, have not only a crop of cotton, but have a crop of honey and feeding honeybees uh, within that same landscape. You guys have alluded to that a couple of times or, or outright said it, that benefit the farmers get from having bees and pollinators around. And I think, you know, it's something that Press and I have talked about several times, but I, I think the average person maybe doesn't think it through quite as far. They think, oh, you know, corn and soybeans or whatever, you know, it's pretty clear that, that bees are a benefit to fruit production, for instance. I mean, I think people, most people understand that. Of course, unless you're talking about mandarin oranges, when you don't want bees there to, to pollinate it and get seeds in your oranges, but that's a whole nother issue there. But um, farmers and beekeepers are mutually beneficial to each other. I've read some studies that, that in soybeans, which is a self-pollinated crop, could benefit up to 25% from having managed bee colonies in the area. Now, I, I know that works hard to really confirm, and that was some work that was done in South America, but there definitely is a benefit. Maybe measuring it, is, it can be difficult in some crops, but there's absolutely a benefit. And I think most row crop farmers maybe don't see the benefit. They just are maybe, you know, somewhat annoyed that they have to follow some regulation or, or check, check a database before they go and spray. And so I think it's important that people understand that there is actually a benefit there to, to everyone to have pollinators around. Yeah. And, and just to jump off of that, when we consider crops that are pollinator attractive, which includes soybeans, despite their really, really small flowers, honeybees will visit those. Those are, those are captured within the pollinator risk assessment framework. If a pollinator is attracted to that crop while that crop is in bloom, uh, that, that is going to be encompassed within the work that we do, including estimating exposure to those pollinators within the nectar and pollen matrices that the bees would be visiting. And soybean is a fun one that 
is a good example. We cannot, as, as humans, even feasibly collect enough nectar from those flowers to quantify what pesticide residues may be present. And so we are able to utilize the bees to collect those matrices for us to then analyze for uh, as we collect the returning foragers to estimate what potential pesticide residues are present within those crop matrices. And so we do studies like that to estimate exposure of a particular pesticide within those be relevant matrices across the crop groups for products are, are used uh, when the risk assessment uh, needs to be uh, further refined for particular uh, crops based upon the toxicity profile of a, of a given pesticide. It's a fascinating world of just even how much effort it takes just for one crop to be able to support. And, and I take pride that, that we as a company uh, not only look to satisfy regulatory requirements, but could go over and beyond to really understand the safety of our products for growers and beekeepers alike. Dan, give us a, an idea of the scope of this type of assessment. So, so you're making a safety assessment and I, and I assume along the way, there's lots of different steps where if something fails, it's, you know, it's, it's basically done. So you're talking early on, you find out it's this really great product as far as controlling the target pest, but it also is not as specific as you'd like it to be probably, you know, at least in that application, we're probably not going to move forward. How, how long does that process take and kind of what's involved as far as resources? Yes, it, the, the current estimate for a chemical to be registered by the US EPA is, I believe it's around 12 to 14 years right now from discovery. And so it's quite the process, hundreds of, bil hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions, hundreds of millions of dollars in order to develop uh, a, a product uh, and, and get that product in the hands of growers. And within the pollinator framework, it's, uh, a tiered uh, testing uh, process, which all that means is you start in the laboratory with, with worst case scenario type exposure where you're feeding a particular organism. This goes beyond bees, uh, feeding a particular organism 100% of their diet uh, as a spiked diet with that pesticide included in order to estimate uh, what level is, is going to generate a, a toxic effect for that particular organism. And from those data, uh, it advances to more realistic scenarios where think for honeybees now at the colony level rather than an individual level and a product being applied to a crop rather than being fed through sugar water in a syringe. Uh, so that exposure scenario is more realistic. So just to capture that with the bees, we, we assess initially for a product, the acute oral, so through, through their diet and contact uh, placed on the thorax of the bee, uh, in terms to in in order to generate toxicity for those acute exposure scenarios, we also do those same uh, via a chronic delivery of the test organism for a longer duration. That 100% of the diet being spiked, and then we also generate those same data not only on adults but also larvae. So we feed larvae in vitro in the laboratory 
those diets and then develop uh, a toxicity profile for those products, for that product, for the, the various life stages uh, and exposure scenarios for the bee. So it's, it starts there and then we build up from those data to estimate exposure and, and more realistic risk scenarios through field toxicity studies. You mentioned honeybees. Are there other sample species you screen I, a certain number yes. or like, I assume ground beetles or what else are you screening for? Yeah. So within our organization, there's a number of non-target organisms that are looked at within the different classification systems of animals, which we like to call taxa. And so across those um, taxa, I'm primarily focused on the pollinator space where honeybee is the model surrogate species. It is globally available. It has well understood husbandry. It's an critical importance to agriculture. It has standardized validated methods, meaning the same methods can be followed across different labs across the whole globe, and you can get a similar level of performance uh, for that particular test. And so honeybee is where it starts, Uh, but its biology is unique in the bee world. We think of honeybees first and foremost, generally when we think pollinators, but there's 20,000 other types of bees in the world. And so we are looking at developing methods, uh, Bayer, as well as uh, through international working groups to establish methods for other species of bees, namely a semi-social bee, such as the bumblebee, uh, as well as uh, solitary nesting bees. We generally the osmia and megachyle. So megachyle would be alfalfa leafcutter bee. And osmia, there's two species here in the United States, the horn-faced mason bee and the blue orchard mason bee that are primarily looked at as surrogates for those species with that type of biology. And on top of that, we can also look at unique exposure routes through those noil soil nesting bees to consider whether our dietary routes of exposure are representative for these other exposure routes that may be present across these diverse species globally. So honeybee is still the focus on most of the data generation that goes into our risk assessments, but it's, it's, it's expanding in real time in the way that we consider our risk assessments and really ensure that what we do for the honeybee is represented for the other species of bees as well. Dan, if you didn't scare everybody telling them there's 20,000 species of, uh, of bees, anybody that has any insect fears is now checked out <laughs> for sure, <laughs> worrying about everything. But so, I mean, just broadly speaking, I mean, the environment in general. So think plants, think fish, think uh, aquatic insects, uh, birds, mammals. I mean, these are all the different taxa that we're, we're considering in the environment as we're developing these products. Uh, so similar safety testing strategies that, that Dan talked about in the lab for honeybees exist for the other model species within, within these other taxa groups. Um, just to really get an overall understanding of uh, environmental exposure and then potential effects on, on these taxa to, to ensure that we have a safe product for the environment. So guys, when we talk about doing testing, some of it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you, you can rear up insects and you can expose them and you can do that without 
you know, obviously don't want to kill off a bunch of stuff, but you, you raise them specifically for that purpose of testing on them, right? And, and they're not released into the environment. That's how you, how you manage that in, in a lot of cases. But when we're talking about humans or mammals, you mentioned other vertebrates, um, what does that process look like? Because you can't just feed a bunch of people, you know, something that might be toxic and see what happens, right? Yeah, for sure. So there's a whole different group. So Dan and I are in like the, the ecotox, ecotoxicology, the environment. Um, that's kind of our specialty. Within Bear, we've got a whole another arm of, of folks that are human health. So they do the human health. So this would be, they look at like dietary assessment, right? So like they're going to look at what people generally consume. We're going to have a, a residue group. So these are people that look at the residues in, in food crops. So any product that's registered, they measure the residues and say grapes or whatever. And if there are residues present or not sort of consumption levels at that point within the general public, but the toxicity is again with model species. So think other vertebrates that can be used as surrogates for humans um, to, to design that toxicity. And again, that's a well-established paradigm. That's that they're using the same species. So not only can you see like, Preston, you mentioned arsenic back in the day. We could look and say, hey, listen, this new molecule is this much safer than arsenic was back then, right? So you're using the same tests over time in accredited labs um, that are following what we call good laboratory practices. Um, so this is a whole bunch of tracking, a whole bunch of confirming all the instrumentation is correct and documenting all of that so that you can go back and really understand uh, how that study was done and it, it makes it repeatable. So if, if we run that study at Bear, someone else at a university or at a government lab should be able to run the same study and get within a degree of uncertainty, the similar answer. Uh, and then I'll also mention, so we mentioned a little bit about exposure, right? So the environmental exposure, there's a, another group that, that figures out. So when you go out and you spray a cornfield, what is the offsite movement? So where is that, where is that product moving off, offsite from the cornfield? And then as you get further from the cornfield, that exposure is going to decrease. And so then we're modeling in the environment, the potential for exposure and, and setting uh, infield buffers where necessary or, or different protections uh, for both the environment and, and human safety. And, and the farmers are very well aware of this that are listing, but there's probably some consumers out there that don't realize what a pesticide label looks like. And there's all kinds of requirements on um, safety equipment to wear, maybe, you know, maybe it's not even something that's necessarily highly toxic from a health perspective, but it might be an eye irritant or damaging to the eyes or whatever that might be. There's also all kinds of requirements for when farmers go out to spray, how they do it, what time of the day to do it, certain things you don't want to spray when pollinators are present. It, it isn't necessarily overly harmful to them if, if they come into contact with the residue from that pesticide a day later, but if they're out there foraging when you spray it and it contacts them directly, it may be, you know, have another effect. And so there's all kinds of things to be considered. And, and really pesticide labels are very complex documents and, and farmers are legally required to follow those documents. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into this that maybe the average consumer doesn't realize. Yeah, on the, on the pollinator side, there's a lot of beauty in that exposure component. I alluded to a bit of the approach that we take for evaluating exposure using the soybean example, but what do we do with those data uh, once they're generated? It's, it's using those data, we can establish safe pre-bloom application periods for a particular product, whether it be 
systemic or not. Uh, we can set buffer zones. We can increase the droplet size to reduce drift to non-target habitat. Select an application rate that, that may differ based upon the type of soil that, that is present in a given uh, geographic range. Apply the product at dusk or dawn, or even in some cases, once we evaluate the, the particular exposure through pollinator relevant matrices, we discontinue those uses and we don't put those on our labels uh, moving forward because that exposure is higher than what the data would suggest is, is uh, safe to, to pollinators. And so there's a lot of beauty in, in the way not only those data are generated, but how ultimately it informs the labels that, that farmers have been following to ensure a use that's not going to create undue harm to pollinators on that landscape. Sounds like a lot of work and a lot of money to bring a new product to market, <laughs> but it's awesome that, you know, companies like Bayer have folks like you guys out in the field, making sure these are safe to humans, safe to pollinators. Um, and then obviously all the other risk assessments that you described kind of changing gears, Tim, I know you were going to mention some of the Bayer for biodiversity program. Give a quick plug on that. Do you want to go ahead and speak to that maybe here in the last 10 minutes or so? Yeah, that's great. And it actually brings me right back around to something Jason mentioned at Farm Progress. Uh, so it is a program that we're going to be launching at Farm Progress this year up in Iowa. Uh, excited to talk about it. If you're going, stop by, see us at the, the Bear Crop Tent, the outside plot tour. And really what it is, is it's, it's a way for us to talk about our conservation and our, and our partnerships within the uh, sort of this, this education and then conservation landscape. So really, Farming uses a lot of land, right? A lot of land that used to be in diverse habitats, whether it was forest, whether it was prairie, whatever. But we as people need, need farmland to grow food for people, right? But at the same time, we've displaced a lot of organisms in the environment by doing that, right? So now they have less habitat. So one of the things we like to talk about is, is really figuring out where in these farm landscapes can we find little nooks and crannies to maybe diversify the landscape? Could this be a an unproductive low spot? Um, could this be a turn row where we're not, we're not hitting yield? So the unproductive acres is one thing that we like to talk about a lot. And we have a lot of different partners um, from our climate organization and field view, but also external partners with like Pheasants Forever, who have precision ag specialists that are, they're looking at those areas that, you know, honestly, farmers could be spending money to farm right? I mean, you, if you really count up all those inputs, and so if you count up all your inputs and you, you hit to a, a yield threshold, right? Where if you don't hit that yield threshold on those acres, it's costing you money there, which is really dragging down your total yield on that whole field, right? So if you don't, if you don't plant that, you're not going to have those inputs. You put it into some sort of conservation program. There's public, private, all sorts of different options out there. Uh, and really, we're just trying to help farmers learn about those different options um, that they have to diversify their farm. And I think biodiversity, carbon credits, there's a lot there's a lot going on that that can be that can be done on farm, but sort of off field or edge of field. Um, and it ties right into pollinators because a lot of the options are, are pollinator plantings or, or things that are in bloom. And, you know, a lot of the guys that I, I've been to Farm Progress for probably well, without the break the last couple of years for COVID, uh, quite a few years prior to that. And just 
you know, they really appreciate this habitat. They talk about their neighbors that come out and want to take like wedding pictures out on their prairies that they've got established right there. They're talking about all the different plants they're seeing, the insects that they're showing up and it, it doesn't take big plots. I mean, an acre here, an acre there really, really makes a, a difference, especially for like a migratory species, like a monarch. Um, when they're heading south or north on their migration and they need a, a stopping point to nectar up, um, those little patches of habitat mixed throughout the landscape can really make a, make a difference. I think that's a great point, Tim, and I, I think we can all see that. We've seen very small little plantings. You know, somebody plants, you, you mentioned an acre, but even less than that, some some native prairie that was some, with some blooming things in there and things like that. And the diversity of insects that you see in there is, is really amazing when you just stop and take a look at some of those things. So it really doesn't take a huge effort. I mean, farmers can set aside an acre, a couple acres, or even small areas along the edge of fields and things like that, waterways. And there's a lot of options out there that really doesn't have to cut into their production. As you mentioned, it might even make the farm more profitable by taking some of those areas out of production. Yeah, there's lots of options and lots of, uh, so I mean, we partner with a group B and Butterfly Habitat Fund in the upper Midwest, uh, depending on the size of the area you want to do. I mean, it's free or reduced cost seed, um, expert help to help you get the planting in. And really, you just need to be planting and managing it is, is the labor aspect, right? Um, there's also, I mean, there's tons of government programs. I'm sure everybody, a lot of people are aware of the uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, their Conservation Reserve Program, CRP, and other associated programs that, that really help farmers. I mean, there's specialists in those areas that, that help them uh, make, these, make these ideas in reality and, and also find the right program and the right, right solution for their specific farm. So local NRCS offices are a great resource there. Nice. Well, in that same vein, well, first of all, we appreciate both your times here today. If some of the listeners want to learn more about, for instance, Bear for Biodiversity, or maybe some of the work that, that Bear is doing from a risk assessment standpoint, any recommendations on where those folks can go that we can link in the show notes? Yeah, so I'll, have, I'll, I'll share some, some links with you. We're going to have a Bear for Biodiversity website. It'll be on the, the, the Bear homepage. It'll have links to resources for farmers, links for the public, if you're interested in putting a little patch in your backyard or what plants are good for your area, there's planting guides, uh, a lot of information on our partner programs uh, and other groups that we're partnering with to really get more habitat on the environment. Well, once again, we appreciate your time here today. It's been a pleasure. No, that's yeah, awesome. Thanks. thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.